paid support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch on the Channel 33 podcast feed. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor from TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, my devil in Helsinki, it's Andy Greenwald! This is a big one. This is exciting. Uh, I'm kind of emotional about this podcast, man. This is a special episode of The Watch. It's the re-up, uh, and we are on the Channel 33 podcast feed. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and please sign up for the Ringer newsletter at theringer.com. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm with my buddy, Andy Greenwald, who I've known for 20 years, and that is kind of what this podcast Ooh. is about. Ooh, this is deep. This is this is sort of an origin story. This is really Dawn of Justice. Yeah, this is the Dawn of Justice. We're talking about uh, the year in music, 1996. Now, what Andy and I wanted to do is not really do a, you know, like a complete objective overview of that year, um, because that's not really what drew us to music in the first place isn't really to be objective. I mean, obviously you get into it for the train spotting stuff of being a completist and knowing about everything and, and, uh, and, you know, feeling like you, you're discovering things all the time, but music is really a, a, a tool, especially, um, when you first get out of high school. And this is 1996 was the first year. It was our first year of college. Um, and it was the year I met Andy. I actually met Andy in Philadelphia, um, in the summer of 96 and music was sort of the bridge for us to kind of meet up. And so this playlist and this podcast are, is about remembering that time and remembering the music from that year, but not like in a completest way. Um, and it's been a kind of really cool like th- act to go back and look at all these records from that year. Andy, it was such a great year for music. We were so hyped up all the time about new records and new bands and new possibilities. And actually, what makes me the most a little tenderhearted about this conversation is that, as you alluded to it, it really kind of was music that brought us together. Because we found out later that we were probably both at the Trocadero at a certain Guided by Voices and Pavement show. Or there were probably other times that our paths intersected. But both of us left Philadelphia for college, and we were both back after our freshman year in the summer of 96. And we had a mutual friend who basically said to each of us, oh, I've got a friend that likes pavement. You should meet him. And we were like, oh, totally. Yeah. But and it, I still remember this is going like, to sound oh, like totally. this is going to sound like a Nora Ephron movie or something. But when I met Andy, he was wearing a T-shirt for this New York band called Versus. And that was a, it was a very obscure indie rock band. And I was like, oh, like I've heard of Versus. Like, and here's the thing about, you know, this isn't going to come as news to anybody who's like our age, but pre-internet you kind of had to find your own people and you had to find the subcultures that you were interested in. And you would basically start down this rabbit hole where, you know, maybe it would be alternative nation or 120 minutes on MTV, or you pick up an issue of alternative press or spin or magnet um, or the source or whatever. And you're reading about rap, you're reading about alternative rock and you just get deeper and deeper and deeper. And as you go deeper, you kind of need people to go with you. And that's kind of how, I met a lot of my friends. I'm, I know it's the same thing for you when you were at school. Yeah, and what I really yeah right people. My f- first week of college and at the end of ninety uh, end of uh, fall of ninety five when like we had a RA training on how to be respectful to each other and then two of the kids I met like came back to my room to talk and they were like oh you you like got it by voices and then I was like okay now we're friends and we're still friends I'm going over to one of those dudes' house tomorrow and our daughters will play together because we're old but. <laughs> The bigger point that I think is worth noting, well, okay, two points. One, I am very happy that we weren't 
weirdly like pissing contest about liking the same bands. I felt like we were very uh, to our credit. You came to see me. You came to meet me when I was on my shift at the uh, Borders in Rosemont. R.I.P. to both Borders and Rosemont. But <laughs> now maybe Galifties is still there. Anyway, uh, but that we were both like excited to meet someone else who was interested in these things, which I think was was good. And I hope that all subcultures continue to behave that way, even though the internet suggests that maybe they don't. But it wasn't just that we were. F- What's important to note is that we weren't just fans of the bands we were talking about, which that first night at the Villanova Diner was probably Pavement and Arches of Loaf and whoever was on whoever's T-shirt, but that we were also really deep fans of finding out more about the cultures sort of radiating off of them in waves and in circles. And, you know, I found this quote this week. Um, well, let's, let's keep it to 96. Um, one of my favorite bands, Bell and Sebastian, released one of my all-time favorite albums that year, If You're Feeling Sinister. And they're doing this thing on their website now where Stuart Murdoch, the leader of the band, is sort of going back in the archives and talking about the iconic record sleeves that he made for those early records. And he was talking about this, the record sleeve they made for If You're Feeling Sinister. And he said, as soon as it was done in, in the summer of 96, I wanted to put it out immediately. I wanted the band to be like a factory. I wanted to have an instant and extensive back catalog. <laughs> I guess what I really wanted was to make up for all the time that I'd wasted. And that's what was so exciting about music at the time and i feel like we can't stress this enough which is that everything was the potential first step down a set of stairs into a whole new world that if you heard of one band if you liked bell and sebastian be like oh well they're influenced by felt and then you would have to research felt and listen to what was this band oh they were on creation well oasis is on creation now who used to be on creation and then you end up you know suddenly fighting fighting over a biff bang pow seven inch at repo records and Bryn mar but you know, I'll, let's stop talking about me. But <laughs> the idea that everything was a possibility, and I think that one of the things we wanted to, to 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 stay on in terms of this conversation was that sense of possibility. That is really that's not necessarily tied to 1996 or even in a pre-internet era. That's really tied to getting super into music when you're young and building yourself as much as you're building a collection. I think that that's something that I've started to really acknowledge about getting older and and you know and when i was getting into pavement there were guys who were about six years older than me who were just like pavement's just a dinosaur junior ripoff and now when i'm into you know when i see people who are into i don't i don't know i don't even know what people are into now i mean like no age a couple years ago i remember being like that's just that's just music i liked you know like whether japan droids or, or you know like nothing wrong with those bands i like them but it's it's not necessarily that one band rips off another or that one band is a watered down version of another it's just that's your generation's band that's your class's band and um we can identify all sorts of stuff from that time period whether it's extra musical context or the specific things that seemed to be threads through that year, which we're going to talk about. But mm-hmm. I think that it's important to recognize that it, to every season, you know what I mean? And like the same way that we feel like 1996 or the late 90s are this super fertile, important time. I'm sure people feel that way about Yachty and Thugger and everybody else today. You know, it's like there's everybody's always going to get their their golden generation. Yeah, and, and, and the music that is always going to sound better to you because of context. I mean, that, that, that's generally a great way to approach art anyway, or at least an honest way to engage with it, that, you know, who you were and how you were when you experience it for the first time is always going to color it. But it is, you know, I, I was riding for 95 as maybe a better year because I had this, like, magical day. I went to the record store in Providence and bought the new Oasis and the new Super Chunk and this... Um, Red Hot and something or other compilation yeah, that had right. these it, amazing tracks it, on it. Was that Red Hot and Bothered or Red Hot and Blue? Red Hot and Bothered and exactly. And then the Help 
compilation that oh, had yeah. the first new Radiohead music in a couple years on it. But you've made a really strong case. You've made a playlist, we should say, that we're going to share with people for this Yeah, so we have a playlist. And 96 was a pretty wild year. Yeah, it is. it was a great year for music. And it's the playlist is called Midnight in a Perfect World. It's on Spotify, and we're going to share it with folks. And we actually have some very special guests for this podcast today. It's a little bit of a different look for us. Um, joining us later in the podcast are going to be uh, Wasu, who's one of our favorite writers. And we're going to talk a little bit about DJ Shadow's introducing record and a little bit about Tricky's premillennium tension record but the sort of big get and i'm, I'm sure why will acknowledge this is we are going to be joined by uh wu-tang clan's the rizza now uh andy and i have been talking a little bit about rock music and and, and underground rock music like pavement and super chunk and archers of Love and verses and all these bands that we were kind of into but um andy and i were rap fans and we so we still are but like rap and the emergence of rap from 88 through high school and into college and the emergence of these kind of totems of the genre were what was really like one of the defining things of my youth and and andy's youth and um 96 was a phenomenal year for hip-hop some of the best records that came out that year were were rap records whether it was the fujis um man nas's it was written which in uh, after about three and a half beers i will make an argument for being better than illmatic um (laughs) what about what were some of your favorite rap records from that year well, the thing about that year, though, is that for me, it was like coming off of it was like a hangover, right? Because yeah. you we're Last talking about records. this this un this unbelievable run that was for us was high school, which was Wu Tang, Nas, and Biggie, basically just bang, bang, bang in '93 and '94, and then we suddenly are in this whole new world where these people are superstars. Not that we helped them get there, but like it was one of those early moments where it's sort of transitional and like. They're right. They're coming back with second statements, and they have to be bigger, and they're everywhere. So I, I, I will. I don't need any beers to tell you that you're insane about it was written. <laughs> but I appreciate your moxie. Um, I, I, when you talk about rap records that year, the, the one that I'm pretty excited about is um, is the Roots' Illadelph Half Life. Now, the Roots obviously have had a second amazing second life as the tremendous house band on the Tonight Show. But for us, also coming from Philly, yeah, like this was the record i think it was technically their third record although organics doesn't really rate that highly with a lot of people i think people usually go from do you want more but do you want more was this sort of like coming off a of post gang starry kind of like are they a band and do people like them just because of this jazz thing and we're going to talk about the jazz thing when we talk about tribe in a little bit but this was just a rap record and it's a really good one and it's pretty astonishing to listen to in retrospect that they are making records that sound like mob deep records but they're making them as a band and they as they are today one of the best live acts in music and that's a big record for me from that year of course yeah i mean and so obviously with the rizza coming on it's worth talking about wu-tang i think it's kind of hard to overstate the zap that wu-tang put on our heads from 92 to like 98 right oh it's unbelievable like we could and we probably should at some point do an entire wu-tang podcast because this was like it was like winning the cultural lottery where there was this secret society basically where you could be indoctrinated into it just by listening to really terrific music but then they struck the the most well, probably still is the most unique deal in in the music business history which is as a group they were signed to one label but individually they were signed to a you know, as many labels as there were members and yeah. at 96 that that number started to rise precipitously and perhaps dangerously <laughs> um 
so it was really this thing like okay we all love the group now who's coming next and there were people who were you know super into method man into cal came first and then there were people who were just checking for raekwon early and i wish i could be cool enough to have said that i was that dude but i wasn't but i will only built for cuban links is my favorite wu-tang affiliated album of all time 95 by the way not 96 yeah so by the time we got to 96 there was a guy who i think wasn't on anyone's radar ready to drop so not not just that he wasn't on anyone's radar ghostface was like raekwon's sidekick right yeah and so when his record came out He's sharing the cover of Iron Man with just two other dudes. This is this insane spirit of collaboration and weirdly non-existent ego that it would just be complete. It's just complete foreign language to what hip hop is today. And this, yet that record bangs. And that and and it, it was the coolest thing about Wu-Tang was that you would get these guys, you know, you would you would hear them on you heard them on Enter, Enter the Wu-Tang or they would show up on some of the early solo records, whether it was Takal or only built for Cuban Links, and you would kind of be like, okay, I have a sense of what Ghost can do, or I have a sense of what Dirty can do. And then there would be these leap records where they would just explode as artists. And um, I we can talk about this all day long, but I mean, I don't know why we wouldn't just hear from the person who produced all these records. So Andy, let's take a very special uh, break here to play my interview with the RZA. I'm joined now by one of the greatest producers in hip-hop history, simply. This is the RZA. RZA, thank you so much for joining us today, man. What up, Chris? All goody good. Happy to be in the building. Um, tell me a little bit about what you remember about the recording of the Iron Man record, because I know from reading previous interviews, there was like it was a little bit of a different experience for you guys, right? Yeah, actually, Iron Man uh, for Ghostface Killer was one of the first albums that we uh, recorded at let's just say a third party studio after after we had some success. So if you think about um you know, Cuban Links and and uh Liquid Swords, they was like we was able to do those under the confinement of my own studio, you know, I engineered them. It wasn't really too much outside influence or things of that nature while making the record, right? Yeah. Uh but then I had the big flood and we had to, you know, find a place to work at and there was a great studio on Staten Island called Mystic Studios. And we basically rented it out for like a three or four months. <laughs> like it became our home. Like it, it smelled like us, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh and um that was like one of the first times we we, we got that openness. And it also turned out to be one of the funnest times as, as well. Meaning, you know, a lot of different visitors came through, a lot of good energy you know, Wu Tang would go do a, a show somewhere, and at night come back to the studio with a with a bunch of liquor and girls, and you know, so it had that. It had it, had, it, had, it was one of our first more open experience of recording versus the very secluded ideology that I would present when I was making music with the boys. How did that openness, that and that almost that rock and roll lifestyle that was happening around the studio, like how did that affect the music itself? I think I think it has a, had a unique effect in the sense that some of the thematics of the lyrics, some of the uh, some of the ideas of the music, like if, even if you take a song like Assassination Day, I recall uh, hanging in the city all day with me and Old Dirty, and I think it was around 14th Street, and they had all this old used guitar porn shop or whatever and uh we just getting drunk chilling it's like yo I'm going to the studio with ghost tonight i'm buying me a guitar and i wound up buying a a guitar and a and a slide guitar <laughs> neither of which i knew how to play right you mean like one of those like and like almost like a pedal steel that sits flat 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Yep, the pedophile. So, so I bring both of these back to the studio, right? And I'm sitting there trying to get a noise out of the guitar, like a different noise other than the strum. And there's one dude there, he was uh, like an OG from the neighborhood. He looked at me and said, hey, yo, Riz, I think you got to hold a string like this. And he just held one string and hit a note. And I was like, oh, okay, that's how you do it. <laughs> right? But so it's, I sounded terrible uh, trying to do that. But then on the slide guitar, being that, you know, I'm a little DJ. I could kind of, I had, I had a little rhythm with that. I wound up playing with that, and that became... The, the 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 music of Assassination Day. Dun, 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 dun. That was me playing the slide guitar. Man, you know what I mean. Um, so anyway, no, yeah, go ahead, finish. No, so 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 those you know the unpredictable of the energy being open like that. I think led to some of the songs on that record having a more more. I think more fun than fun in their own way. You know, you think about um. After the smoke is done, Wu Tang Delphonics. After the smoke is clear, and you look at uh, the Delphonics came to the studio, and they came with a, a old soul on B singer named Major Harris. And uh, Major Harris, he's the guy who originally recorded uh, "Love Won't Let Me Wait," which was recorded over by Luther Vandross later for our generation. But anyway, this, these guys come to the studio from Philadelphia, and they they, they came in dressed cool like a motherfucker. Like this is like. This is Wu Tang getting a chance to see the music of our moms and pops and the style of you know the the, the, the fur hats, the the whole you know the the the, the leather print jackets and all that. And this 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 is their wardrobe. So they come in. We know we still have five hoodies and all like that and Timberlands. So they came in with this crazy cool look, and and uh, it kind of really felt for me and Ghost. We felt like kind of accomplished because. There was many years that men have had talked about, you know, other musicians, you know, making mixtapes of pin your favorite old R&B artists on there and things like that. And then getting a the chance to work with the Delphonics for us was like, like, like a, uh, like we made it, you know what I mean? In our own way. And then, so then, the, you know, they say, that it was, I guess they had to go get some beer and weed or whatever. And Ghost, Ghost could tell the story better. Because <laughs> all I know is that they went to go get it and I kind of stayed in the studio working on the music. They come back four hours later. Yo, they shot the Delphonics van up and all this other <laughs> the Delphonics got to a shootout with Wu Tang and some neighborhood shit. And it was and it, they loved it though. They're like Wu Tang, y'all some real motherfuckers. So, <laughs> I'm glad the Delphonics can roll with that. Yeah, they roll with it though. You know what I mean? And that's that's the coolest thing. And Ghost could tell the story more because he was in the van. I was, I was, I was. I stayed in the studio. They came back and told me what happened, and they still did the song. That's amazing. Hey, they did the song. <laughs> That's veteran showmanship right there. Um, let's talk exactly. a little bit about Daytona 500 itself. Um, the Nautilus break that you used is is kind of you know it's like a famous hip hop break, but it the way you flipped it and it sounds like you run it through like an amplifier at the bottom of a stairwell and it's just so raw and fuzzed out and then it has so much energy. How long had you been playing with that break? Like what do you what what do you what was behind the production of that? The cool thing about that, right, and uh, when we was just DJing and just making home tapes, that break, we would always throw it on, and everybody would always go to the part with the break goes, you know, when the, it breaks to the bell, you know, when uh, the bass line drops and the drums come in and everything, right? And for many years, you know, I would do mixtapes or whatever, and so I throw it on and go surround on it, right? And then he was like, yo, 
bring back that one from you know the the, the uh the um sometimes we call it breaking bell, sometimes we call it Nautilus, right? Yeah. Depending on who's asking. And so he 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 he's the one that told me to go back and bring that break back. You know what I mean? And so I was like, all right, fuck it. Cool. But we I, let me just try to get a part that nobody used. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um we went through the record and we were tearing apart and he's like, Yeah, the bass and I was like, Yeah, hold on, let me just catch one part of the bass that had a, like a certain kind of vibe. Like, you know, because when you're playing with jazz, every two bars could be different. You know what I mean? Something different about it. Maybe somebody didn't hit the hi-hat on that one. Maybe the snare dropped. Maybe the, the you know, you never know. I mean, it's never really all the same. It's not a loop. And, but we, I found, the, to me, which I thought was a great part of the, a great loop, I looped it with the ASR. The ASR does have a built-in guitar amp effect processor, even though it was only maybe 16-bit at the time. It's even 16-bit. And we, uh, I sampled it with that, and I looped it up, sped it up to a little tempo where we wanted, like, sped it in the, in the sampler, so not just the vinyl being sped up, but the sampler speeds it up. And I think I must have sampled at, uh, I think at those times I was sampling at 23, 23 hertz instead of 44. And so at 23, you got a little more grungy sound out of it. And uh, Raekwon and Ghost went in there and killed the shit. Mathematics, you know, who, uh, mathematics, he's, he's, he, you know, we always the battle, but he's always been a better scratcher than me. You know, it's, it's uh, the queen style of scratching. With oh, yeah, the Island scratching style. in between the first two verses is incredible. Yeah, so we got math to do the scratches, you know what I mean? And he fucking killed the scratches and bung. Um, you, these are two, I want to ask you a little bit about Ray and Ghost's relationship, not only as friends, but like, the great thing about those two guys across Cuban Links and Iron Man and, and 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 whatever else is just like the way that they play off each other. And I was wondering, did they record those verses like in that order? Because does does Ghost hear Ray go out of his mind on that first verse and know he needs to bring it? Because that was like one of those first Ghost verses where you're like, Ghost is just tapped into something else. Like he can hear Jimmy. Yeah, you know what? Ray did go first. Cap- Look, Capo was in the building too, though. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and and, and during the during recording of the Iron Man album, those were the three it was you know, first it was Ray and Ghost. Kappa came Kappa got out of the jail in the middle of Cuba Links and he jumped on Iron Man. Uh then he jumped on Winter Wars, which became I mean he jumped on ice cream on on Cuba Links and then he jumped on Winter Wars and then he and from that moment on he him and Ray and Ghost was just those were the three guys, like always buying clothes together, always shopping together, always hanging. And and so those three guys are both, are all three very vicious MCs, and uh, they bring the best out of each other to me. And people, I think, at the time didn't, didn't see that Ghost was evolving to be one of the best MCs of all time. You know, people were this. I think the rest of the crew had already developed. Like Capital was already developed. He already probably was at his peak already, but Ghost was still increasing his level. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and like you pointed out, and I agree with you, that's one of those verses that by the time he got the Supreme clientele, he was fucking, it was fucking ridiculous. But I remember Old Dirty saying this to me, yo, when he was listening to the Iron Man album, he was like, yo, and this is a little bit, I'll share this with you and, uh, whatever. At the time, Ghost was having some kind of headaches and shit during Cuba Links. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, like issues. But, but. Yeah, he was having some kind of issues. But Dirty analogy of it was like, yo, 
because you fucking been thinking so hard to get to be the best. And you fucking made it. That's what Dirty was like, yo. That's why this nigga's having headaches. This nigga, look, look at the fuck he's writing, yo. He's fucking busting his brain to get this shit out. And, um, and, you know, I'm not saying that's the fact, but I could say that his dedication to what he was trying to do, you know, he was a dude that would leave, go in a hotel for a few weeks, and, and, um, and, and, and come back with fucking mega bombs. Oh, man. I mean, you said, you mentioned Dirty. Like, how much were other Wu-Tang members around for the solo record recordings? So, like, was Meth or Dirty, like, would those guys show up? Or yeah. They, yeah, so they were just, there was just a communal vibe going on where those guys were just around. Yeah, during, during that album, um, it was always, uh, you know, for the first few albums, somebody was always in the building. Whether they got on a song or not, or whatever, it was like, you know... Like I said, we was coming from shows, we had girls, parties, somebody was always around. So like I said, Dirty was in the studio, even though he didn't do no verse. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But he was in there partying, getting drunk, chasing some chicks around. So that was a, that was a really strong beauty. It lasted all the way up until Wu-Tang Forever, um, when we all kind of came to Cali, and, and it's still you still felt the energy. Then maybe during the W... Where we, uh, where it became like we was trying to make that energy, right? You know what I mean? It's like you're trying to be Wu Tang rather than be Wu Tang, yeah. Yeah, we was, yeah, it was, it was being because everybody lived in the same mansion, and uh, while we did the W, as I say, this last thing I know you're talking about that, but anyway, everybody lived no, in the same okay. mansion while we did. You the, want to talk about the W? We talk about the W. I just say this one thing: everybody lived in the same mansion while we did the W, but everybody didn't show up to the studio. It's like, it's like gotcha. you'll come home. <laughs> And everybody's home, but yo, what the, why the fuck did you come to the studio? <laughs> <laughs> um, let you me know, talk. Everybody had their own fucking cars. Uh, anyway, go ahead. everybody. So everybody's just zooming around. Um, I wanted yeah. to ask you a little bit about, like, you know, I'm sure that just like when I think about the '90s, they they kind of blend together. But '95, '96. Um, it's such a creatively fruitful time for you, and it's not only the stuff you're doing with Wu Tang, but I know you worked with Tricky around that time. And I was wondering, it's like that's where like the Wu Tang sound really started to just permeate across you know, in, into England. It starts showing up. I know you worked with Bjork around that time. Like, what are your memories of that time period as as a as an artist? And and is there a way that you would almost characterize that time period? I just I just was uh, I just I don't know if I had a if it was a kung fu movie. I came back with a vengeance. You know what I mean? And and my creative output, fortunately, had uh, avenues to travel. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was comfortable with traveling those avenues. The funny thing uh, is that even when that, so when that, when the years of years later on, you and you start seeing less output from me, it's not because I had less creativity. It's just that I've, I kind of chose not to walk certain avenues, and that's my own. It was a person. It was like a a personal decision to like. You know, just to be like, I'm, I'm, I ain't saying shit. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I'd be able to see that one day, y'all, I don't care, I'm not saying shit. I don't care what you do. I'm not saying shit. Like, when your parents just don't want to tell you no more to clean your room up. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that personality had came into me and said, and uh, that's kind of, you know, that's just what it was. You know, that's why I, I, I kind of started in 97 and it lasted until, uh, lasted all the way up until I think what I'm doing these days, which is, Expressing myself in many different art forms yeah. all at once now. Yeah. Yo, thank you so much for calling in today and thank you so much for the music you've given us, seriously. 
Bong, bong. Long live hip-hop. Take care. Peace. All right, so we're back, man. Um, Rizzo, at the end of that interview, started talking a little bit about working with people like Tricky and people like Bjork and the idea that basically um, his music was starting, like I think in his words, pursue these different avenues, right? And like that mm-hmm. you were hearing things that were Wu-Tang in Tricky's pre-millennium ten- tension or you would hear Rizzo remix a Bjork track. I don't think it was from 96, but my point is, is that basically there seemed to be this transatlantic and global kind of conversation happening. And in the mm-hmm. same sense, it's like what you were talking about earlier about like the sort of possibilities of music and the, and some of the records that were really almost um, emblematic of that were introducing by DJ Shadow, Premillennium Tension, like we're talking about with Tricky and Bex Odele. Uh, as record, as music fans, wasn't the most exciting part about all of this that it felt like our record collections were starting to like manifest themselves on these albums? I, I think... I think that's really well said because I think the experience for a lot of people in the 90s and this this sounds I would imagine this probably dates us more than anything else just to say that music taste was just so much more parochial then I think in general than it is now the idea of having a conversation across genres across styles across oceans now is that's just taken as a given because the world is tiny and you know reachable through your laptop or through your phone but you know, and I think I've told this anecdote before on the show, but like the same friends who are still my friends who came to my room and checked out my Guided by Voices box sets, which sounds weirdly dirty, shouldn't, <laughs> um, seemed very weirded out that I also had Biggie albums and I had a poster up. Because the idea of those two things occupying the same space was sort of foreign. They, it was either one or it was the other. And so to have an artist like Tricky come out, and like Tricky came out of Massive Attack, who was another hugely, I think, at this point, underrated artist and, or collective. And Tricky was essentially a rapper, but he didn't really care that much about rapping. He would often let his then teenage girlfriend, Martina Topley Bird, just sort of sing raps, either his own or public enemies. He was um, a producer, but you couldn't tell exactly what he was doing. He was incredibly prolific and clearly charismatic, but then would hide from the spotlight. And in 95, he put out Max and K, which is still a close to perfect album. And then with Premillennium Tension, you know, he, he was basically articulating everything that we were interested in, but on wax, right? Because he was taking the hip hop that we love from the East Coast. He was taking the funk that was still very much happening on the West Coast, but he was filtering it through this post-trip hop, post-Brit-pop filter. And so it suggested a larger world, which is really, you know, that in itself is really appealing to people who are... 19 years old and very eager to participate in a larger world, but not really sure how to get access to it. And you talk about sort of the boundaries that were there with genre. There was also a real um, adversarial relationship with success that was going on back then, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And the relationship that people who were music fans had with um, the ideas of corporations. I mean, we had just kind of like watched firsthand the rise and fall of Nirvana and it's sort of strange. I mean, like, I I wasn't really a, a huge Nirvana fan at the time, but I think that was made a huge impression on me was the, was the relationship between what mega corporations could do to the music you love. And also, one of the things that happens over and over again in the 90s, you see, is just people starting in a sort of underground subcultural way getting massive amounts of exposure because of something they've done and then basically collapsing under the weight of that exposure. And that happened with Tricky 
Because mm-hmm. premillennium tension is basically an answer record to the fact that Maxine Cook K was in every Urban Outfitters, was basically the soundtrack of going yeah. into a coffee shop or an Urban Outfitters back then. Um, and then you see that happen with Radiohead I mean, a couple it, years later with OK Computer, where they just are like, I can, we, we cannot be the alternative rock poster boys. And, and I would jump in and say that that that, that tension, whether it's premillennium or not, is all over the, the playlist that you made. Um and side note, the best and most beautiful love song on the Tricky record is called Makes Me Want to Die, which sort of sums up the 90s in <laughs> yeah. an incredible way. But if you look at the bands on this playlist, you know, there's a lot of there's some expansiveness coming from the rappers and the and the hip hop tracks that you put on this playlist. But in terms of the, the, the so-called indie artists coming out of the alt rock boom in the post Nirvana, what there is is a lot of a lot of modesty and a lot of retreat into quietness and beauty. And so bands like the Spinanes and Red House Painters and Bedhead. And, you know, there's also there's the beginnings of other things happening there. You know, you put some early emo stuff on there, like we're just regional scenes doing their own thing now that the major label attention had been focused elsewhere. But I think it's pretty noteworthy that the the smaller bands seem content to stay small and the relatively bigger bands and in this case, I'm thinking of Weezer, who put out Pinkerton. That was that year, right? Yeah. yeah. I still remember... Yeah, I remember you came over to my parents' house, and you played me Pinkerton. And I was like, I don't know what these guys are up to, but they sure like Asian girls. Um, <laughs> You're right. You're right. That, that, and I was right. I, I, that was just me being a future rock critic. I really nailed that one. But no, but like that was a band who should have been one-hit wonders, and then they were three-hit wonders, and then they were like, I don't know what to do anymore. And of course, that album now, 20 years later, is considered a masterpiece. But it is this sort of awkward retreat that is pretty fascinating to watch. It was fascinating to watch play out when it was happening, and now it's even more amazing considering all the things that happened in the decades since. Yeah, I mean, part of the cool thing about that era is... um... I mean, it was difficult to find this music. There was a, like, you know, I didn't know about Promise Ring in 1996. I didn't find about really out about them until 97 because like some friends of mine were listening to uh, Nothing Feels Good, which is the record that they put out that year, I think. And they were like, oh, yeah, don't you know Promise Ring? And I was like, no, I don't know Promise Ring. They weren't written about in Spin. So I just didn't know. You know what I mean? And I didn't know about uh, Sleater Kinney as much. You know, I, I I knew that there was this really great band apparently coming out of the Pacific Northwest that combined a bunch of people who were in big Riot Girl bands, but I didn't know about like the scenes and that was sort of the secrecy. One of the um one of the things that was also happening around that time in terms of like these like subgenres and these these kind of um underground scenes was like this DJ beat maker producer stuff that was happening which is kind of happening with massive attack like you were talking about with tricky but probably the biggest kind of purveyor of that stuff the 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 most critically acclaimed purveyor of that kind of you know beat heavy post-hip-hop music was dj shadow and we brought uh one of our favorite pop culture writers wasu uh on to talk a little bit about introducing we're now joined by one of my favorite pop culture writers, one of my favorite music critics, Wasu, who writes for The New Yorker. He used to write for Grantland. Uh, wow, what's going on, man? Man, awesome to be here. I'm so excited to have you. We wanted to talk to you a little bit. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about DJ Shadow's introducing record, which was um, something that like, I think is one of the, the sort of lasting records from that year. It's something that I, I feel like... Uh, people have continued to go to uh, over and over again, and it hasn't aged one bit. Um, do you still listen to Introducing today? 
You know, for the longest time, I probably would have said that introducing would have been the one album I would take with me on a desert island if if that was, you know, like your concern about going on to desert island. Just because it, it seems so expansive, you know, there are just so many ways you could imagine what was going on. Like, I think it just being non-lyrical, it, it has aged really well. Do you think that when when it was coming out back then, I mean, how much do you remember in terms of the context under which it came out? Because I feel like he, Josh Davis, who, who the, the DJ Shadow's real name is Josh Davis, he was kind of emblematic emblematic of a bunch of different subcultural scenes that were happening at that time, whether it was Moax, but it was also like the beat digger, crate digger, like funk break Indiana Jones thing that was happening at the time. And do you remember how you what what you associated with him? Like what scene you kind of associated with him him with? I don't know, man. I mean, I think, I think I, you know, one thing that I think drew a lot of us to hip hop, besides just the storytelling, the content, was just that sense of, oh, I didn't know you could do that. You know, like I didn't know you could sample. I didn't know you could just rap over old music. And you know, with Shadow, with Beck, with. Um, you know, a lot of the trip-hop stuff coming out of the U.K., they just started sampling kind of weirder stuff, not just funk breaks, but I think I think Shadow sampled Bjork on introducing. Yeah. Or, I mean, it was just, you know, just and tricky with sampling Smashing Pumpkins. I mean, that definitely pushed that I didn't know you could do that in, in a pretty different realm. Um, probably explains why someone like me who was in college at the time, like, it really appealed to me. But... Um, <laughs> I think the other the other thing with Shadow was just the fact that he came from Davis, which, you know, was affectionately referred to as sort of a cow town if you're from the Bay Area. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't just the fact that he was sampling kind of like weird stuff or, um, you know, making really narrative instrumental hip hop. It was just also that you could do this coming out of your bedroom in, you know, a pretty obscure town in Northern California. Yeah, and I think that the one thing that Beck and Shadow, and to some extent, like you were saying with Tricky, that they all had in common was it started to almost sound like the manifestation, like the artistic manifestation of record collecting and of being a music fan. Uh, yeah. And it, and it kind of gave us an avatar, right? Like if you spent a lot of time at Kim's or at Third Street Jazz in Philly or wherever in California or in Chicago, like these these record stores, and you spent all, like hours looking through through different albums and wondering what sounds were inside this this music started to be an approximation of like all the sounds that were going on in your head yeah man there's so many there's so many unrecorded opuses of my mind on my <laughs> my on my record shelves right now do you miss that kind right. of, that, that kind of like uh almost sense of adventure when it comes to listening yeah. to stuff yeah you know the thing is I just finished writing my first book and um, something you think about when you're doing something like that is, you know, trying to pretty much just stunt on every page, just trying to do like everything you've ever wanted to do and put it between the covers of your book. And I think with introducing, it just really sounded like weirdly economical or a little restrained given sort of how ambitious and how big it was. You know, I mean, he could have, it, it just really felt like the uh, a refined vision of his style, and I think that's something that really stays with me. It doesn't really sound 
too overblown. Um, it just sounds like exactly the album he wanted to make. And I think that's pretty rare for uh, an artist's debut. Yeah, it's and it still sounds incredible today. Um, I'll let you go with this last question. Is there uh, other than introducing what is a record from '96? If, if you if off the top of your head that that you still go back to today. I mean, I think any musical zeitgeist, you know, you have to think about sort of what the readily available drug was at the time. So '96 to me is definitely just kind of a hang out on your couch kind of weed era um definitely the tricky album just that kind of nightmarish chopped and screwed dance hall style i mean it's so forward-looking and nothing sounds like it still Uh, it's so i I was listening to that on the way like driving in to work the other day and it's it's so incongruous with having like mental stability <laughs> it just if you're driving and you're it's like sunny out and you're listening to vent or tricky kid it just doesn't you're yeah. like uh, there's something really wrong in the world and i i am not in touch with it right now because like and and for some reason back then that felt like this like satellite from outer space that was just being beamed in and even though it used so much stuff that i was familiar with it it still sounds as otherworldly and as disturbing today as it did back then yeah uh, and the other thing I remember about 96 is just that seemed to be the era when, you know, bigger rock artists like like R.E.M. I remember had sort of a weird kind of beat thing. Yeah, on, that was um, New, New Adventures. Adventures. Yeah. 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 It just seemed like the era when rock bands started having, you know, like a DJ scratching on their tracks or, you know, some extra production help to add, um, you know, more rhythm to their arrangements. Yeah, it was a texturally like really really interesting time. Well, look, man, I don't want to keep you any longer. Uh, let you get back to Zeke. Thanks so much for um, joining us today. Why you we can read Wa stuff uh, at the New Yorker. And thanks again for calling in, dude. Thanks for having me, man. All right, talk to you soon. And listening to Wa talk about all that stuff it take takes me back. I mean, I guess that's the point of this podcast. But I spent so much of that decade and literally all of the money that I was able to acquire on hope and on guesses and yeah. so much of it came from a british label called moax you know that put out um dj shadow stuff and God, then later he was, was so with the founder of, of <laughs> it was so expensive and i was thinking about 96 they put out a compilation called heads 2 and it was two double disc sets that were just beautiful with paintings by massive attacks 3d on the cover and they were full of you know dj shadow was on it and the side project he did uncle but like Nightmares on Wax, and I think maybe Fotec was on it. And it was just this beautiful noise that I didn't know where it was coming from. It was coming from this like version of London in the UK that really only existed in my mind. And I'm almost grateful that I didn't travel there because I would have probably been disappointed because that, you know, I could just basically live off the heroin scarred images of the train spotting soundtrack and like my back issues of Melody Maker for London. You know, the, those Moax records were so expensive. I, I just remember holding those those heads compilations and being like i just don't know if i have the money you know and that that in some ways was so influential over what you wound up listening to is just the choices you made in the music i i know that helium's on this playlist and i remember buying and selling the helium album dirt of luck at used record stores like three times not because i didn't love it or because I didn't love it. I just liked it, and I only liked a couple of songs, and I was like, well, maybe I can get $3 in credit for it and buy something else. 
Yeah, but I did the reverse, which is when I bought those heads compilations, I basically considered it like a layaway plan because that would I was no longer <laughs> able to buy things for a number of weeks after that, so I was forced to listen to them. I carried those two beautiful cases with me up and down the eastern seaboard countless times. Like it was it was like the only thing that I had to keep me company by because I had chosen to invest, I don't know, like 70 bucks in them. So because of that, I think I kind of appreciated it a little bit more. Like it was, the value was so high. By the way, I do think we should mention that we didn't just bond that year over um, indie stuff. It's not like we were both super into spent at the same time. And that's why we were conjoined, you know, joined at the hip. We really, really rode for that Wallflowers record too. Which I really oh yeah, the radio was pretty good back then. Retrospect. And I mean, so you basically had all these incredible like sort of Hollywood versions of alt rock hits that were happening on the radio. I mean, there was also the Macarena and stuff like that. But you had Smashing Pumpkins had singles from Melancholy and Infinite Sadness that were still coming out. The Wallflowers bringing down the house was out. So One Headlight and Sixth Avenue Heartache was out. Were there any other like pop rock radio it, hits that it, you remember from it, that time period that you loved? Yes, and first of all, just to be clear, it was it was bringing down the horse. Because oh, sorry. the be- model beautiful son of Bob Dylan does not need to bring down a house. The house goes down around him. Horses are another story. <laughs> Do you remember, like, one of our biggest moments, I think, was the, was the VMAs when the Wallflowers closed the show doing one headlight with Springsteen, just, just screaming into the mic with Jacob Dylan? Did I hallucinate he that? He took That's his whole thing, life right? that night. No, of course that was that year, yeah. But to, to your point, another thing that we bonded on and I will still ride for is... When this is what a crazy era it was, where you have a very, very good radio guitar pop band like Bush, right? And everything should work for them, other than their terrible name. But like, you know, Gavin Rossdale is a he's a he's a gorgeous guy. He's like charismatic. The songs were like Machine Head, still love it. These are fine pop rock radio songs, but because of the pressures of this underground or this idea of purity that really carried weight in the marketplace, I guess. Those dudes went to Chicago to record with Steve Albini, which is always an insane decision for anyone, I think, just for your quality of life. But they came out not just with an album that was okay, Razorblade Suitcase, but with Swallowed, which is one of yeah. the most nonsensical best songs ever recorded. And I feel like th- I'm grateful that whatever putative attempts at record review zines we made in 1996, because we did. And I think we both took turns writing rapturous singles reviews of Bush's Swallowed. I'm glad that doesn't exist, but I'm glad we did it because that song deserves it. Um, I wanted to wrap up things today on kind of a downer note, but, you know, the music lost uh, someone, a, a legend, basically, like when with the passing of Fife Dog this week from Tribe Called Quest. And um, so when I, I met Andy, like in 96 in the in the summer, And then sort of towards the end of the summer before people were going back to school, uh, there was a night I know that like we basically like bumped into each other downtown and it was the night that Beats Rhymes and Life came out at midnight, right? We can we can track this, right? Because the the record was released on July 30th, 1996. So this was July 30th, 1996, when I was with my then girlfriend who was visiting that summer and was walking through South Philly to get to Tower Records to buy this album. Maybe it was the night before because it was like waiting to get it at midnight or something. Because we were so yeah, excited for the Yeah, it was like midnight release because that was the the big thing was like to go. Because I remember I went and bought Being There by Wilco in, in that way, I think. 
But the truth is you and your high school friend John were the real Midnight Marauders that night because there was like yeah, a, we a were... police lockdown in South Philly. And the two of you were just like you were just out scavenging. I don't know, quite know what you were doing. <laughs> but it was but what was nice is that I, I was you were like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm going to buy the new Tribe Called Quest album. And you were like, that makes sense to me. And I was like, what are you doing? And you're like, we're just wandering around the city. And I was like, you know what? We're 19. That makes sense to me, too, brother. <laughs> but um Andy, but in your but, mind, but in, yeah sorry yeah yeah aside from this the anecdote about us discovering it like this is a it, it's a crazy week to think about it just because the the voice of this guy of 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 fife was so essential to our lives for so long and we talked about finding each other and over our music taste in this you know in this we, we found love in a in a in a hopeless big box store in 96 but one thing that we can talk about, for as tribal as music was in the 90s and as stratified by genre, everyone loved Tribe Called Quest. And I remember thinking for a while, because I was, you know, a, a, a punk. I wasn't actually punk, but my attitudes were punky. And, like, it was almost annoying that people liked Tribe Called Quest. You wanted to preserve something for yourself or you'd get a little resentful when there would be people who would be like, well, I only like real music like jazz, so I like Tribe Called Quest. And they were sort of tarred with that brush. But looking back, there is something pretty exultant and wonderful about the fact that when you were, when we were that age and we'd go to college or we'd meet people, pretty much everyone had low-end theory. Pretty much everyone yeah. had Midnight Marauders. Yeah. These albums, both those albums are perfect front to back, first of all. And I was listening to them again yesterday, and they just made me so deeply happy. But that is something that is, in all the conversations that we have and other people's have other people have about music sometimes the most basic thing is the most easily forgotten or overlooked which is that this is joyful noise so this is wonderful stuff and yeah. that's what tribe brought and and within that world of joy it was fife who brought it the most because he was the most every guy figure he was always funny though always jumping all over everything and he wasn't the star i mean q-tip was the one who everyone from the minute people's instinctive travels came out everyone was like oh this kid's gonna be big and then he was in movies like poetic justice Fife was a five foot three diabetic kid from Queens who on record was, you know, an Adonis and a lover man and could dunk. And he was always, always, always welcome. You know, he, this is not like a weed carrier situation. He was the soul of that group. And so to oh, lose no, him at a young age yeah, is, he, is brutal. It's, it's equal shares. I mean, you, you touched on it. It, it. Beck was an alien. Wu-Tang were superheroes. You know, Tricky was from some other world. Radiohead were dealing with this sort of crush of fame that I didn't really, you know, like is, is completely, you can't identify with that unless you go through it. Tribe were us. Like you, I, I think the reason why tribe is one of the most sort of universally loved groups is because everybody saw a little bit of themselves in those guys. And if you had friends, you saw yourself in the friendships that those guys, those three guys had. That's why it was so hard to accept them breaking up. Um, even if you could tell yeah. by the music that they were going in different directions or that Q-Tip wanted to try to maybe make different kinds of stuff. It was just, you always sort of saw yourself and it was so weird. It was like, I can't remember whether I started dressing like them or I was dressing the way that they were already dressing. You know what I mean? It's like the chicken or the egg with that. And it was, it's such a loss just to think that that, that life is gone and that that part of my life is over and that 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 music is done you know that that group is is sort of done it's 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 just such a tragic loss 
what what I really I highly recommend everyone check this out. Um, the ninety three source cover story on Tribe that um, the Kieran Mayo wrote, and I I tweeted it out yesterday. We're recording this on Thursday. I tweeted it on Wednesday. I'll, maybe I'll, I'll re up it again. Um, it's just an amazing snapshot, not of just who these guys were as people and as artists, but of a different time. Now the story was from ninety three, right before Midnight Marauders came out. And it just took me back. Like, that that album was the soundtrack of, of my last two years of high school, back to front, front to back. The record itself, you know, is this collection of faces of people in the community. And just that idea that there was a community, that everyone knew yeah. each other, and they were commenting and hanging out, that was just mind-expanding and really exciting. And frankly, exciting in the same way that, like, not to get too grandiose, but a show like Lost or Game of Thrones is exciting, where you're like, look at this cast. How are they going to interact with each other? That's so exciting. But right. And then you, you the wind about- up getting... It's that Delillo line from not to be like not to be grandiose to myself, but it's like that Delillo line from Libra, where it's like there is a world inside the world. You find out and that, that there is like a a group of like minded people who are interested in the same things, who have the same reference points, who are interested in the same themes and sounds, and it's it changes your life when you find that. There's no better. I mean, I I didn't expect to find it in Delillo, especially in a Delillo book about JFK assassination. But aren't they all about that, really? Um, but <laughs> But that, but I think you said it best about what's great about music and what's great about looking back on the music of your youth. I just feel like also this tribe story, and I hope people read it, to, to feel... I, when you hear the two of us talk about it, maybe we're making this sound like a black and white foreign time and, you know, we sound old or whatever. Read the story and it puts the world into perspective because these guys were coming off of two relatively big hits um, in People's Instinctive Travels and Low End Theory. They were making this album that was going to be supposedly supposed to be their biggest hit. And they live with their grandmothers, you know, like yeah. they live with their families in Queens. And there's just this intense humility and just realness of it. And it's not just where they live and their circumstances that they let a, a, a writer just roll with them across the Manhattan Bridge, you know. And if anything, I think that everything we've talked about today, the passion people are going to have for music, the connection they're going to find with their generation's music, none of that's going to change at all. But no, this that that acts that weird lo-fi access or relationship to fame and to celebrity and to these artists that's gone for good or ill that's yeah. gone forever well uh, we really thank everybody for listening to us go down memory lane we'll have um a special version of the ringer newsletter tomorrow that has on friday that has um some of uh riz's thoughts on fife and has our playlist and uh some of andy and me and andy's favorite albums from the year and uh we're really uh glad everybody listened hope uh, hope you enjoyed it i really like talking about it thanks man Thank you.